Now, the Wealth Protection Diva is a successful entrepreneur, business owner, and premier business strategist, president and CEO of Sage International Incorporated, and a national speaker, best-selling author, and motivational teacher of financial education, business development, and wealth protection strategies, the joys and frustrations of being a business owner. Her insights are motivating. Her frankness inspiring. Here is Sherry Hill. Are you spending so much time capturing and reporting past financial data that you have no time to plan for the future? Are cash flow issues keeping you up at night? Do you need additional funding? A chief financial officer, CFO, can resolve these issues and many more. As a key member of your executive team, the CFO has primary fiduciary and financial responsibility for the organization. The good news is that no matter what your company size, you can benefit from the skills and expertise of an experienced CFO. But I'm sure most of you right now are thinking, I can't afford one. My guest today is Scott Waite, a partner in the firm R.S. Waite, Chartered Certified Public Accountants and Management Consultants. He focuses on assisting businesses with business CFO services, including business valuation, profit improvement strategies, cash flow analysis, and exit planning services. He is a member of the Nevada Society of CPAs and the past president of the Estate Planning Council. Their website, rswait.com. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Sherry. This is a great day for an interview for me, a new experience in many respects, and it helps me understand how to actually best share with people the traditional and non-traditional aspects of our business. Awesome. In the many years I've worked with really great CPAs, and what always attracts me to them particularly is that they have such a grasp on every stage of a business's life cycle and come from a place of education, so of course you are no exception. So let's start with you sharing some of your history about your CPA and management consulting firm and just what makes your company different from others. Well, Sherry, my brother and I have been in business for over 20 years now, and we started off like many CPAs. We, little by little, uh, acquired business clients as well as individual clients, and we realized at a certain point that we wanted to go a different direction in addition to our tax practice, which is many times uh, what traditional practices are mainly focused on, as well as some financial statement preparation. We decided we wanted to do a little bit more for our business clients in addition to our financial background which included um, improving our business appraisal or business valuation skills. We started that about five years after I joined Richard, which was in 1994. And we realized through that process that was very helpful because that is not a traditional CPA, shall I say, function. Many CPAs that I've come across, when they look at a company and try to value it, they look at the actual tangible assets and obtain appraisals and things of that nature and then accumulate the information, say, I think this is what the value is worth, Mr. or Mrs. Client. And that's not really the approach that a buyer, if it's even if it's an employee or a, uh, a family member, they're looking at it from a totally different point of view. Now, granted, there are tangible property items in the, in the business, but the real value is, is what is it generating in terms of cash and income and what are the opportunities in the future? Uh, that's what a buyer is looking at, no matter which buyer you're, you're thinking about. So we, we found that was helpful for clients because what we re- learned early on was that 
one of the largest assets the small or medium-sized business owner has is his or her business mm-hmm. outside of maybe their home, maybe a few other assets, or if they're lucky, they they become part of a trust. But most people have to you know go through life earning their their assets, which is with the business owner. Many times they whatever earnings they make, they run run it right back into the business to grow it. But in some cases, they don't understand what a buyer is thinking in terms of the value versus what they believe. Well, I do want to talk about business valuation, but I want to do that a little bit later in the show. I want to concentrate on this segment on the importance of the chief financial officer. And because I know that, again, you're unusual in that you hire yourself out as a temp or an interim CFO to really help companies get to that next level. So let's talk about, you know, why does that matter to me as a business owner and why at some point I outgrow my ability to really, as the business owner, be that CFO. Okay. As an example, businesses, when they start out, as you have seen and others, they have many hats that they're wearing. At a certain point, though, there's only so much time during a typical week where they can be focusing well on certain aspects of the company, including the financial reporting, so they can make better strategic decisions. So we usually come in as a part-time or outsourced CFO when they're at that growing pain point where, okay, I can't do everything or my bookkeeper can only do so much, so we need more help, at least on a part-time basis to help us with making sure that the accounting records are reporting properly uh, and reliably, and also that we can look forward and do more planning with forecasting and budgeting. In terms, And then there are some situations where we are coming in there because they're having cash flow issues. They're not properly either keeping track of their cash inflows or outflows, or they have a particular situation as an example where I came in uh, just recently where this company is a good size. It was, um, it was over $5 million in revenue at the time. They, they were having a feast-famine issue with their cash flow. And one of the main issues I helped them with was, well, identifying why is that? Why, and I learned that there, there were about half of, of their business was based with some very large customers. And they were, it was a long-standing relationship, but they had no contract, which was an issue. That, that gave me pause with regard to risks to cash flow and the overall uh, sustainability of the business. So I suggested to them after l- about two or three months of going through some of the analysis and cleaning up other parts of their records as well as replacing some of their accounting staff that needed to be done was to mention to them, you have a very consistent relationship with these large customers consider a long-term contract and even consider changing the cash flow arrangement because at the time their feast famine issue was a hundred days oh. famine <laughs> to a feast yeah and then back again and this has been going on for a while so with his my encouragement to him he decided to change his ways and it took some courage because he was concerned as to whether they would balk totally because he had never tried this before and that solved part of his issue as well as he needed to refinance some loans. So in that situation, that was a severe cash flow issue. And then that also affected the profitability. They, uh, they were profitable, but it didn't look that way when you look at the bank. Right. So those are the, some of the issues we've come across. There have been situations where 
there is good cash flow, but the profitability was low, so we assisted the clients with reclassifying their customer base. If, uh, let's say if I can use a simplized format, call it a, an A customer, a B customer, a C customer, a D customer. The A customer is the ideal customer, very profitable, as long as we know that the accounting records are showing that. They are very happy. In fact, the firm is or the business is exceeding expectations, and they're referring high-quality customers to them. Then there's a B customer who is, in many respects, very happy. They're not referring customers, and they're profitable. And then there's the C customer who is uh, over 50% of the time, they're happy, and they're profitable. Maybe not as profitable as the A customer, but sometimes they have problems. Sometimes it's high maintenance, something there's, there's wrong, something going wrong. And then the D customer, you probably could tell, is uh, you wonder if the accounting records are, are accurate enough, they're maybe marginally profitable or maybe not profitable, and they're rarely happy. We suggest, in many cases, concentrate on the C customer to become a B customer, a B customer to become an A customer, and do what you can to maybe not focus on the D customers or consider... Showing them the door. Ter- terminating <laughs> or door. firing ourselves <laughs> right. from the customer. So those are some of the issues we've come across right. as CFOs. And, and then many times those customers that we fit well with a part-time basis and then we sometimes transition out for a full-time at some point are those between a million in revenue on up to five where they're in that in-between growth stage uh, where they or else they stay at that stage and they just need some part-time help and then they have a controller or a bookkeeper doing other things. But many times those controllers are really busy. Yeah. They don't have time to look at the strategic issues where a CFO could help with the owner and the other management team. Well, and I think just in listening to your language around, you know, some of the things that you're looking at, you know, the data, the analysis, the really drilling down into the financials. And if I am someone who started a company, I got us to the million dollar mark, now I'm moving into that next level, you know, one to five million. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on and Mm -hmm. it's certainly the cash flow is affected, whether it's manufacturing or customer service or Mm -hmm. personnel or all these things that are grabbing my attention. I do not have the skill set to drill down just like you did so simply to go, let's look at where your revenue is coming from and what are the changes that need to be made. From your perspective, how successful have you seen companies that do not bring in the CFO? Well, in some situations we've seen where the owner doesn't really want to release control. That, that control is a big issue with small and medium-sized businesses I've seen. And I can understand because many times they went into business because they don't want to be somebody else's boss. But they have to let go a little bit to grow. And it takes trust. Uh, that have been I've seen situations like that where they did not find... Uh, human capital, if I can call it that, other resources to help them gradually grow to that next level, where sometimes it gets to the point where they are not keeping track of some of the the vital areas of the business, and they either go through a fairly significant crisis 
or we they go out of business right. at a certain Because you, you can grow too fast to bankruptcy, mm-hmm. yeah. and if you don't have someone, like you said, really looking at it from a totally different perspective with the knowledge and background that you bring to the table as a CPA mm-hmm. and, and working with businesses, you know, you haven't been there since the baby was born, right? right. So mm-hmm. you can just come in and do data analysis and, and really help companies get to that next level and that's kind of your sweet spot the two to ten million in there correct with regard to the cfo Mm -hmm. services absolutely because they are in that uh, growing pain phase it it could be a certain point where it just stays at that level or it gets to the next level uh, depending on the um, a number of factors including the owner's desire to grow because there are some situations where and i tend to agree with some owners where they don't want to grow too much because the whole culture will change right and we can help them on the financial way of looking at it, but they are some of them have a very good point say well i just want to stay in my sweet spot right about here which is two three million or whatever it might be and they're happy there and that's a great lifestyle business and then sometimes that's they just need some part-time project work but there are others who want to get to the $10 million where the business will change. The culture, it's going to be difficult to keep that small, friendly uh, culture of a small business where there, people are multitasking and it's a very relaxed, many times situation. It becomes more structured right. as, as the company grows. And as we know, it is called no man's land. So we'll be right back after this break. This is Kathy Halberdier from Nevada Industry Excellence. You are listening to The Sherry Hill Show. Sherry Hill is important to me because she supports our outreach and efforts in economic development. Sherry Hill is the wealth protection diva. Sage International Incorporated sparks and fuels the entrepreneurial spirit by providing the strategies, information, education, tools, resources, and ongoing support services that will lay a solid foundation under a business owner's dream. If you're thinking of starting a business and you're not sure where to begin, Sage International Incorporated offers a free 30-minute consultation. Call 1-800-254-5779. That's 1-800-254-5779. Or visit sageintl.com. This is Tom Taramina from Virginia City, Nevada. You're listening to The Sherry Hill Show. Sherry Hill is important to me because she has the passion for excellence. Sherry Hill is your next business advisor. Welcome back to the Sherry Hill Show, doing everything possible to spark and fuel your entrepreneurial dreams. Now, here's your host, Sherry Hill. If you are buying or selling a business or settling a dispute, one of the first key steps is to determine and understand the real value. A business valuation involves an intricate combination of analysis and opinion combined with hard facts and judgments. There are many internal and external factors to consider, so it's critical you hire a valuation team with the experience to help you make sense of it all. My guest today is Scott Waite, certified public accountant, partner in the firm R.S. Waite. He assists clients with tax planning, tax preparation, and financial statement preparation. Scott regularly writes articles on issues of business valuation, profit improvement strategy, and tax planning issues for national business and financial publications. You can check out their website at rswait.com. 
Scott, a business valuation is basically an appraisal of your company. And of course, what I think my business is worth may not actually be what shows up on the final valuation. So I'd like you to talk about the process and why I, as a business owner, could use this tool to help me run a more successful enterprise. Thank you, Sherry. The uh, business appraisal process is based on methodology that has been accumulated throughout the last 50 years. And we're our firm is a part of a national organization that keeps track of and is at the state of the art of the, org- the business appraisal world. It's called NACFA, National Association of Certified Valuation Analysts. And they mainly are composed of CPAs who have focused their practice on business appraisal type work. And there are three main approaches to business valuation that are considered accepted by the likes of the IRS and courts around the country. There is the cost asset approach, which is basically looking at the tangible assets in your business and getting those appraised and then accumulating them and coming up with a value. does not include goodwill or what you call an intangible type of assets that are not showing on your financial statements. These are mainly focused on those assets that are showing on your balance sheet, which is has your assets and as well as the associated liabilities. So that cost asset approach is mainly used for companies near liquidation or there are some special organizations that mainly have very valuable assets really composed of the business, the real estate-related partnerships where you've got five properties. Those can be sold off at any moment because it's pretty straightforward. The financial reporting is pretty easy. And those assets are really the major composition of that business. It's not management. It's not cash flow because those properties are creating the cash flow or the earnings. Then there is the market comparison approach, which is a common uh, and uh, well-conceived approach. The strengths of this approach as compared to the cost-asset approach, which is not used very much because of the situations I just shared with you, is, is used with a lot of different kind of businesses because it's based on some databases that are out there. There are three major databases we're aware of. We've, there's a database for small businesses under a million. There's a mid, mid-sized database, and then there is a, a huge database that's for mid-sized and very large companies. And it's a database that is voluntarily being submitted by business brokers, merger acquisition advisors, uh, sending in certain information. The strength is there's a lot of data, on a lot of different industries. the One of the weaknesses, though, is there isn't enough information because some of these transactions, we don't know the whole story right. behind that transaction either. Okay, look at the earnings on this, which is sometimes described in some of these situations is an earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And bankers describe that as free cash flow. But sometimes that number is not... Similar to the other industry, there's some outliers. And there's enough information about what happened in this transaction. Was this a distressed sale, even though the numbers look pretty good? What's behind this story? So that's the, there are advantages and disadvantages. That It's a comp approach, similar in real estate, that mm-hmm. many real estate people, they're all familiar with. Then there is the income approach, which we use primarily, and sometimes we blend it with the market data comparison approach where we look at the income and we compare the income including items in the income statement that may need to be adjusted to what we call normalize it. Because sometimes in small businesses either the owner is taking an excessive amount of compensation compared to the industry or he's not taking enough 
or there may be some other adjustments that we have detail, so we have that luxury of uh, getting a pretty well-defined earnings uh, line item. Excuse me. And then we look at a factor, a capitalization factor. That's where the art comes in on this particular approach. This, the capitalization factor, some people describe it as multiple, a multiple of your earnings, the free cash flow earnings. And as a general rule, the smaller businesses, that multiple is smaller as compared to, let's say, a mid-sized company. So let's say I compare a $2 million uh, sales revenue company. They're, ma- they're churning $2 million a year. Then versus a 10. The $2 million may be two to three times the earnings, and the $10 million may be six. There are always exceptions to this rule depending on the buyer. But as a general rule, based on these databases, we even see their databases on these multiples as well. The art comes in, well, what industry are they in? What size are they? How well are they managed? Um, um, have they had a good growth trend? You know, they, All those things are part of the process in determining what that multiple is. There is a little bit of an art to that. And then once you just multiply the multiple by the earnings, you have the business appraisal value. And in many cases, if a company is getting ready for sale, we don't even go through the whole process there. We may be just doing the comp approach because it's going to be all over the place. The buyer is going to determine what the actual price is. But that income approach is used for partner buyouts as well as uh, IRS-related and gift gift and estate type of uh, uh, processes. This is Sherry Hill. You're listening to The Sherry Hill Show with guest Scott Waite, who is a CPA here in Reno, Nevada. Question, you know, because I look at it also, you know, most of the time people are going to come to you because, you know, they're in a divorce, they've got, you know, whatever reason, you know, they're selling their business, all of that. But when I think of also a business valuation, someone like you that's potentially, as we talked about in the last segment, hired out to be a CFO interimly or whatever, to give you a good sense of where is this company compared to others in the industry as kind of a starting point to go, well, if we look at the whole value of your business, what's missing? What could you be doing? What are your competitors doing? What else is happening out there? Do you use it like that as a tool as well? Well, we do. In in fact, when we have these engagements where we have the buyer saying, I'm thinking about selling my business, but I don't want to spend a full-blown business appraisal on it. And usually that's not the right way to go anyway. It, we just need a, a high, low, a ballpark. And then also after discussions in going through that analysis of comparing the basic financial information, I asked them uh, questions about, well, okay, uh, how long, uh, how much recurring revenue do you have in terms of your, your customer base? If it's high, that is very attractive to a buyer, and you definitely want to use that in your negotiation site. We sometimes help coach them in the negotiation when it's a small business like that. Another situation is, do you have contracts with these customers? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And if they are repetitive uh, contracts, that's not helpful for a buyer because they well, geez, those people, when they know there's going to be a transition in management, they may leave. 
if it's a longer term contract, it's more there's a sense of stability from the third party's point of view, the, the buyer. As well as, okay, uh, I talked earlier about the classification of your customers and determining who are you best serving. And, of course, you want to always be improving upon that. But who are you best serving and classifying them based on profitability and overall satisfaction from the customer's point of view? Because that's another part of the conversation when you're attempting to negotiate with a potential buyer. And that also can help improve the overall value of your company anyway because it does come down to cash flow as long as it's internally generated. And what are your trends? Those are value drivers. If you're trending up, you're doing well with your management in in serving your customers. If they're trending down, then, of course, you've got some things to work on. The other aspects are the, uh, the customer concentration that I talked about earlier. There are many customers that I've seen, I should say business customers, who have high concentration of customers. And we urge them to diversify as best they can because, once again, it stabilizes cash flow over the long term. And if it, at some point they do want to sell, that is a selling a, a very good conversation to a buyer. Yeah. So does it surprise you that – I mean, certainly when you're brought in to you know, work with business owners at whatever level or reason why – that they really do not understand the value of their business. I mean, honestly, you know, we can look at a balance sheet and all of that, and if you understand how to read them, great. But realistically, you look at it um, because of your background and experience in a way that that I would look at it differently, right? Mm-hmm. So the things that you bring up to these business owners, does it surprise them or shock them or motivate them? <laughs> Well, some are motivated to improve, of course, and others are shocked that the value is not as high as as they'd like it to be. And that's where we we take it from the financial point of view because uh, the the outside buyer, even the employee, I had a situation where a family business was going through a transition and they're first starting on the management transition. And the son said something to the effect of, I feel like I'm buying fool's gold. The reason was he didn't understand what was underneath on the financials and what the potential was. He was uh, part of the sales team, but going through and he was realizing some of the weaknesses in the business, uh, he was shocked at uh, at how his dad was saying, well, I think the business is worth $2 million. I, I don't know what it's worth, but I think it's worth that. <laughs> but at the same time, it, it is a matter – there's a lot of pride there, of course, because they built this many times from nothing. I, the, most of the clients I have, they've started with, okay, a couple thousand dollars. And there's a lot of heart and soul into that business and identity. But when you come from a financial point of view, that sometimes is a very, well, sometimes a sobering experience. But until they realize, okay, I, this is this is what I'm building here. I've got to look at it from a third party's point of view. And the bankers, sometimes they don't like the conversation they have with the bankers because they're coming from a similar point of view. They're looking at the value of, okay, what are the probabilities of them paying me back through the cash flow, uh, through a five-year loan or whatever? So it's a very similar point of view. The third-party stakeholders who want you to succeed, but they're not, you know, they're not part of management. Right. They, well, they're, they're in the black and white. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. And we as owners are out here in the rainbow, right? Right. right. <laughs> so. Well, and, and you've, you've built something from nothing as a business owner, but you're also selling them on the idea whenever you want to sell is that, okay, this is your opportunity that I have not had time to pursue. And it's stable and it will grow organically or 
whatever the the story is, but you are telling them the opportunities in terms of a, a third party. And if they see, okay, I see uh, uh, two hundred thousand in cash flow, and you think it's worth a million, it's like, well, tell me why. Right. And and if you don't have a good story that shows them what they need either to make changes, then it's going to be a difficult conversation. Well, and I, I would think, and just very quickly before we go to break, you also help them discover some, you know, or uncover some hidden assets that they could now, if focused on leverage and really help build the bottom line. So, And one of those is many times if it's a business that's been in uh, service for over 20 years, they have a name, a brand, which is not showing on financials. They have a customer base. At the very minimum, those two things can be sold. And that's why I even say to very small business owners, if you've been in business a long time, you can sell this, maybe the customer list, and have some kind of interim contract where you're helping transfer knowledge to them. It's worth uh, a certain amount. Now, some don't know it's worth anything. Oh, this is just my job. Right. There is that that scenario, too, where they don't even think it's an investment. They say, this is what I've been free to do what I want. This is my job. So, well, there's also some investment here that you can... You can liquidate. You can monetize. And many times it is, even with the traditional brick and mortar, it is the, the name and and the, the customer list that they have. Yeah. So even very small businesses have value outside of what the financials are showing. All right. Well, we're going to pick up on that conversation when we come back. Stick with us. This is Robert Cornish from Reno, Nevada. You are listening to The Sherry Hill Show. Sherry Hill is important to me because she supports coaching. Sherry Hill is taking care of business. Sage International Incorporated fosters the entrepreneurial spirit by first educating our clients. In fact, we wrote the best-selling book, Incorporate and Get Rich, as recommended by Robert Kiyosaki in his bestseller, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. For over 20 years, we've taught thousands of business owners, investors, professionals, and entrepreneurs how to properly structure their business and personal assets to avoid the three flaming arrows of challenge, income taxes, liability exposure, probate and death taxes. Call Sage International Incorporated at 1-800-254-5779 to set up a free 30-minute consultation. That's 1-800-254-5779. Sage International. This is Michael Lewis from Truckee, California. You are listening to The Sherry Hill Show. Sherry Hill is important to me because she gives a voice to local businesses. Sherry Hill is a business owner's best friend. Welcome back to The Sherry Hill Show, doing everything possible to spark and fuel your entrepreneurial dreams. Now, here's your host, Sherry Hill. Like top-notch athletes, corporations need to stay in fighting shape to compete. Profit is the pinnacle of business. It provides the opportunities for future growth and expansion. Everyone wants it, but are you doing the right things to get it? Increasing profitability requires a well-thought-out strategy based on calculation and the development of what-if scenarios. After all, a change in one factor is going to affect other factors. My guest, Scott Waite, is a licensed CPA in the state of Nevada and is a partner in the firm R.S. Waite Certified Public Accountants and Management Consultants. He focuses on assisting businesses with business CFO services, including business valuation, profit improvement strategies, 
cash flow analysis, and exit planning services. His goal is to help you identify your key profit drivers and develop strategies based on this to further improve your profit margin. Scott, from your 21 plus years of experience in public accounting, what common profit improvement strategies and tactics have you seen work well for small and medium-sized companies? Thank you, Chair. The, the very common profit improvement strategies we've seen is actually looking at what we describe as the gross margin on, on the business, which is just for a simplified uh, definition, it's your sales revenue less your direct costs. That may include labor. It may include purchasing. So that it's not the final bottom line. It's the gross margin before your general and administrative expenses. Many times we can find statistics that show, okay, compared to industry, how are you doing there? Uh, that is one area where we look at to see, well, why is it that the gross margin is, is higher or lower for the business, and how can we improve upon that? We had a recent engagement where it was in a professional services business where they were, we were going through a strategic plan with them. We were not actually the leaders of the strategic plan, but we were helping as the part-time CFO. And in that scenario, I realized as they were talking about their, and I alluded to this earlier in the show, the A, B, C, and D uh, customers, that they were identifying who are their best customers who are their uh, largest customers, which is not always the same, who are their smallest customers, and, and the different qualitative and quantitative aspects of those customers, like, well, how are you serving them, uh, what do you like about serving them, and which are the most profitable. And we realized there that they had some what I would call gorillas or whales. But in their situation, they were sometimes competing with their HR department with the services they are providing. And they had these what I would call mid-sized customers that they are actually acting as an outsource of those services. And these, these particular customers were very happy with their services because they were taking on a role that it was not their core competency, that, but it needed to be taken care of or this, their particular customers would, would suffer the consequences. They, they may even lose some business if it was not taken care of properly. So we identified that the best customers, the sweet spot in that uh, strategy as we were going through the process with the leader of the strategic plan and considered it was, wasn't one of those situations the owner was not interested in just letting go of the whales, and we understood that. We just said, just let's focus on the sales and marketing efforts in terms of your people and your, your funds on the sweet spot. And Eventually, we could see that their gross margins were growing. It took some time. It wasn't overnight. And they were not focusing on the big whales and even the very small ones because some of the small ones were not profitable. The large ones were marginally profitable. Is that that sweet in the middle. So and that's a situation where we looked at the overall customer base in relation to the gross margins, and that's one area that we've seen very helpful for our customers in general. Right. So, you know, it's kind of interesting because as I'm listening to you and, you know, literally the drill down into how are you making your money and how are you spending your money? I mean, that's pretty much simply the the, the basic formula, but yet it goes so in-depth depending on the size of the, mm -hmm. the company and all these other things that we as businesses and business owners do. We have our core, and then we get off on what I call the rabbit trails out here because at the time, it represented cash flow. But then 
when does the business owner really sit down and analyze, am I making money on that stream of revenue or am I losing money on that stream of revenue? And that's where you guys come in because Mm -hmm. you know how to look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the other aspect of that is that in some situations, you do need to keep some of the, the low-margin business. If it is uh, a bird that sings for the large-margin customers, yeah, maybe that's a wrong analogy. <laughs> but the idea, though, is if they're working together so that the overall mix of your gross margin grows, that's, that's okay. Right. We're not going to just isolate all this. But if it turns out that it's just a lone mm, customer that is not – uh, referring work for whatever reason, and and they're just there. Sometimes a C or D customer, maybe consider focusing on the A and Bs where they work together to grow the business. That uh, and as as we would like to say, the one on one, the word of mouth is the most effective marketing and sales for small and medium sized businesses because it's cost effective, and you almost gain rapport immediately with that word-of-mouth type of uh, approach and process. So with those A customers who are highly profitable, you exceed their expectations, and they are referring good quality uh, customers, that's how to grow organically and and prudently for the small and medium-sized businesses. Where That's where identifying the different kind of customers in relation to the financials, the cold, hard financials of the gross margin. Right. But but do you find that a lot of a lot of the people that bring you in, you know, I look at, you know, when I look at my financials, I often concentrate on the the net and the expenses, you know, how much am I paying for paper and computer repair maintenance and all those things, but you guys are looking at it at the upper level and we as business owners tend to concentrate on the the lower level, the expense side. And so this this is eye-opening for me because to run the analysis at the, the gross margin versus the net is a twist. Well, that is definitely one area. We do look at the bottom yeah. line, too. It's actually yeah. another example of where we saw a situation, a, a local customer, where they were growing significantly on the, the top end and on the gross margin, but the, the selling expenses we're dropping it below their other traditional business. So we are we do look at both. If there is a significant amount of general administrative or what we call selling expense, that is it does give us pause like wait a minute, that is a low margin business. Right. Overall. So we do look at the the top to bottom on that, but there are some situations where we have to look at that gross margin and then also the overall okay, the overall overhead as well. In that c- scenario, I I suggested to him now wait a minute, it's, it's great gross margin, but that's not helping you. It's not highly profitable sales. Um, and, it, of course, that was a sobering conversation. Right. But, what do you mean? But at the same time, you know, that, that keeps him going. Uh, so it's like, well, okay, this is a lifestyle issue, but if you ever want to put it up for sale, you got to be concerned about that. Right. Um, either, and there, there are still ways around that because we, as we were looking at that aspect of the business, we thought, you know, those – that could be sold. That customer base could be sold. So there still is value there. Even though it was low margin, uh, another potential buyer could say, well, we already have this overhead in place. This is actually worth more to us. Right. So it's not a total loss. But in some situations, if you're just looking at the, the bottom line, it's like, that looks horrible. 
right. that particular segment of the business. So you do have to keep those two things in mind. So, you know, in listening to this, because I am a service-based business, I'm not making widgets, I don't have inventory, I don't have it super easy to be able to go, what's it cost me to make that? What's it cost me to sell that? How do you work with service companies or, as you said, professional firms where a huge chunk of our operating cost is in the the human capital? Right. Well, actually, that, that was part of that company that we went through the strategic plan with them, and that gross margin was based on human capital. It was not based on, it wasn't a manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. So, but there is, in a sense, there's still a gross margin because of the, the direct labor involved in providing those services. We still use that similar approach, even though it's not manufacturing. But we look at the gross margin and then also the overhead below that. Uh, the, the beauty of uh, professional services is that you're not relying so much on vendors as right. you are in distributors or manufacturers. Uh, but you are, of course, you're dealing with human beings, which is uh, a challenge into itself, too. But uh, the, you can still you look at it that same approach with the gross margin and then also the bottom line. And also, you know, with the, the approaches of looking at your A, B, C, and D customers with regard to the how these different services interrelate. And are you receiving leads from these different aspects that may be low margin. If they aren't, it really behooves one to look at it again, okay, why do I want to do work with this customer? Or, or, or is it providing, is it just mainly for my own sustenance? If that's okay, that's fine. But if there are cash flow issues, you sometimes have to let go of the services that are maybe not fitting well with what you're providing your overall or, customers. Or they're not in your core anymore. Right. Stu- right. You know, experiments that you tried or services right. that you went out and offered and you're spending a lot of time and energy marketing or providing the back end, but you're not getting enough sales to sustain that. And part of what you mentioned early on is the letting go. Because I'm sure there's a certain element of ego or, well, wait a minute. I know my customers want that product or service, um, but it's not making you any money, right? <laughs> right. And there are some situations where it is more of a, an emotional attachment. Uh, but in time, hard times, uh, the, unfortunately, that's when sometimes these things change. Um, we've seen situations where the, the owner still wants to provide the service, but I said, well, okay, just don't focus your marketing and sales dollars on it. And if you, they, it comes in through the door, that's one thing. But focus maybe on the other services that you're, you're providing a community service at a, a fair profit to your right. customer. Yeah, that makes sense. We come back, we're going to finish up on this, wow, 360 on business and really shaking out the dirty laundry of financials. But in the end, you are better served as a business owner, especially when you bring someone in like Scott. Check out their website at rsweight.com. We'll be right back. This is Scott Waite, Certified Public Accountant and Management Consultant at RS Waite Chartered. You are listening to the Sherry Hill Radio Show. Sherry Hill is important to me because she has tremendous personality and reaches a great business audience. Sherry Hill is an enthusiastic motivator. Why should you do business with Sage International Incorporated instead of filing a corporation or LLC on your own? Or worse, using one of those $99 plus state fee sites? Well, first, you actually get to talk with someone who is going to work directly with you to develop a business strategy that is tailored specifically to the business you want to start. Second, 
Unless you know what questions to ask, how do you know if the entity you choose will actually do everything you think it should? Like protect your assets and significantly reduce your taxes. For over 20 years, Sage International Incorporated has helped thousands of business owners put the proper foundation under their dream. If you want to get started on the right business track, schedule your free 30-minute consultation today. Call 1-800-254-5779. That's 1-800-254-5779. Or visit sageintl.com. Welcome back to the Sherry Hill Show. Doing everything possible to spark and fuel your entrepreneurial dreams. Now, here's your host, Sherry Hill. Every entrepreneur exits. It's one of the few absolute certainties in business. Assuming you've built a viable company, you can choose when and how you exit, but you can't choose whether. It's going to happen. You can count on it. Creating and preserving value for your ownership interest is fundamental to leaving your business in style. Scott Waite, a partner in the firm R.S. Waite Chartered Certified Public Accountants who assist clients with business valuation, profit improvement strategies, and exit planning services, is also an accredited estate planner through the National Association of Estate Planners. Their website, rswaite.com. Scott, there are a few universal truths in business life. This is one you will leave your business. As a business owner, how can you do it successfully? Well, Sherry, there are two possibilities of how one exits. One is, of course, the one you don't want to think about where, uh uh-oh, something catastrophic happened. That's very important to have that plan in place, which is mainly pretty straightforward. It's insurance of some kind or another. It's a buy-sell. It could be just a basic personal life insurance policy for the very small businesses. So that many times needs to be in place first. But the optimal way of uh, approaching exit is even from the beginning the the person goes into business. But many times we at least suggest people thinking about it, if at all possible, 10 years out. And most of the time we see customers that need to go at the most two to four years out because this is an involved process. Building business is complicated and and arduous and and also very rewarding, and the exit process can be just as challenging because of many times the business owners want this to be not only financially optimal, they want to make sure that their employees are taken care of in in many situations, and also they want to feel like they've been dealt fairly with. They have a, a new pursuit and, and that's one thing that we've noticed in some situations where we ask those critical questions about five or six. What do you want to do afterwards? It's the qualitative, emotional, human side of the exit planning. And that's almost the most important, even though we come from a financial point of view, we can go through and crunch the numbers. But if they're not emotionally and, and internally ready, it's not going to happen. We've seen it uh, in some situations where we asked in a family business transition, well, what, what does your dad like doing? He said, well... He likes shooting squirrels in the backyard. I said, <laughs> okay, well, maybe we just focus on a management transition rather than a, a total business transition. And that's really what happened. He just wanted to stay involved in the business. The owner does not have outside pursuits. It's going to be a challenge because that's the owner's identity. For business owners, the, there's the, the process of, okay, we're going to market this business. It's, it's like a business plan, and it's a sales pitch. The overall financials need to be in good shape, uh, the, the account's balanced out, 
and ideally, if it's been audited or reviewed, but most of the customers we come across, if it's reviewed, that's better than nothing. It shows that an outsider has looked at these financials, and that can be part of this business plan and pitch to the potential buyers. Then it markets to a targeted list. Business brokers do this as well as M&A advisors. With M&A advisors, we believe we have more resources. We can go nationwide as compared to a list that may be local with uh, business brokers. But the concept is the same. You have what's called a, a memorandum. It has the business plan and a pitch like this is why he or she wants to sell and why this is valuable. They call it a confidential information memorandum in some situations. One-on-one, it's targeted, so it's, it's confidential. You have to be very careful about that right? because uh, once the competitors find out, you know what happens. Or it's, your employees, <laughs> if you haven't told them. And, and then at, <laughs> at some point, employees should be told as well right. because there are such things as retention bonuses. And in the best-case scenarios, they know exactly what's going on. But right. that's not always an ideal scenario how the business has been built. So then in that process where they're marketing it and then there are – hopefully a handful of uh, interested buyers before what's called a letter of intent. That's where the seller has the most leverage to get the most optimal financial terms and pricing. Once that letter of intent is signed, it's an agreement. It's not binding, but there are some critical components. One is there's a time issue, 30 to 45 days, that one buyer can do the due diligence. And if for some reason the buyer is not behaving properly, he can back out. Mm-hmm. The other is exclusivity. The buyer, potentially, is the only one that can look at the business. You can't be marketing it to anyone else. But once that process is finished and it looks good, then the final details where a good transactional lawyer as well as a good quality you know, a business negotiator in, in terms of either a business broker or M&A advisor can help in the final details of that definitive agreement. That's the general process of the exit to an outsider. Now, that's still a process that works with internal transitions, too, because both parties should have representation for the best benefit of each. This is Sherry Hill. You're listening to The Sherry Hill Show with guest Scott Waite, who is a partner in the firm R.S. Waite, who are chartered certified public accountants. And, of course, we're talking about exit planning, and, you know, the term planning is right in it because most people do not think three to five to ten years out about what is actually going to happen to the business. And as I mentioned earlier, the business will change hands, period. It's internal to family members or other employees or to an outside buyer, or I just want to close the door and sell all my stuff and be done. There has to be a plan around that. Of course, you mentioned early, you know, the whole emotional side of it. You have to deal with that first. But then as you're looking out through the, you know, the actual strategic plan for exiting, what are some of the things that you're now advising this business owner? I mean, obviously, if they say to you, I want to be done in 10, you don't want to be signing a 20-year lease. Right. (laughs) Or maybe you do. Or, yeah, depends on if it's a restaurant. But, you know, again, so those are all the things that you, as someone who works with business owners to exit, you're coming in with all these other questions that maybe I'm not thinking about. Yeah. Well, and, and part of it is also attracting the, if let's say they're 
their goal is to optimize value, which many times it is because this is, as I said earlier, one of the largest assets or investments that the the owner has. So they need to optimize it or they're not going to be able to retire. They're going to have to maybe annuitize it, which is another alternative where they just put management in place, grow it so that this is just an annuity like a, a consistent payment plan rather than consider selling it. So that is still an exit of sorts. But uh, notwithstanding that scenario, the the business needs to grow to a certain level where, okay, once we've crunched the numbers on, th- what do you need after the sale? Now, that's p- one of the initial steps as well, in addition to the emotional preparedness. So if that that is in place on a high-low of what the value would be and what the net after-tax uh, pocketbook, uh, the bank account hit on the wire when uh, the, the business is sold, if that fits on the high-low analysis, then... We focus on, okay, what is your timing? If this person is burned out, when we may, we attempt to at least have them go two years out if that's possible. If not, we immediately start working on if it's ready where it fits all of these uh, checklist needs for the, the, cu- the uh, business owner. And there have been situations where it isn't ready and it needs to, be, it needs to grow. The earnings need to grow 30 40% in order to... So in other Allow words, them. before you could leave, you have to work harder. Yeah, and that, that's not a, it's not a great conversation, but it's reality rather than just promising the world and, uh, and not giving the world right. to them. So. Obviously, you come in with just phenomenal expertise on many different levels of how you can support a business owner. Would you like them to call you or do you offer a free consult to sit down with someone to see kind of where they're at in their business and where your services best fit in? We do that. We actually, on a regular basis with new clients, it's complimentary. It's a getting-to-know-you type of situation. Are we a good fit for you with uh, the services that we offer? So we do offer a free consultation, which uh, I think it's just it's better for both of us, both sides, because we don't know exactly what their facts and circumstances, their situation is as compared to how we may be able to fit in in some form. So if it has to do with CFO services or tax services or uh, the business valuation, as well as the exit planning, we, on a regular basis, usually it's an hour or so, so we get a better feel for what their needs are and where they're coming from. And uh, that would be something we could, you know, we do offer regularly. Right. So, so what's your phone number? 825-7337, and I'm extension 4 locally. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here and sharing. hit a lot of subjects in, in one show, but when you think about being a successful business owner, every single one of these topics that we talked about, you know, good financials and bringing in a a good CFO, whether it's someone interim or whether you're training somebody internal, improving profits, exit planning and business valuation, this is the language of business. Correct. And you got to know this stuff and you got to understand it and you've got to use these tools to your advantage so you don't work so hard and not get better results. So thank you, Scott, for being here. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. And I look forward to more conversations with you in the future and the good work you're doing out there. And, And I know you're helping business owners sleep better at night. And that's the key. That's one of the keys. (laughs) We'll catch up next week. Have an awesome, awesome June.
The Sherry Hill Show values the role we play in supporting the economic engine driving this country. Small business, the backbone of America. Send her a message on Facebook.com slash Sherry Hill Show and tune in next week, same time, same station for The Sherry Hill Show.